something. It was a get to, not a have to. All right, Matthew chapter 15 is where we're going to be uh, today. We're going to continue our journey through the gospel according to Matthew. And uh, we are actually going to pick up in the 21st verse uh, as a continuation from where we were uh, last week as Jesus was addressing traditions. Now, as we uh, begin our scripture today, let me just remind you that the theme of the gospel according to Matthew is uh, Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, and so he's going to lay out for them just why, essentially making the case and proving why he is their long-awaited Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one, is what they would call him. Now, as Matthew does this, the key word in the gospel of Matthew is the word Fulfilled. We've uh, talked about that several times. But as uh, fulfilled is the key word, he then has to fulfill prophecies of the Old Testament that spoke about him. And so we see through the life of Jesus, as Matthew portrays it, he's fulfilling these prophecies as he goes. But then one of the prophecies, or many of the prophecies, actually point to the rejection of the Messiah. And so as a sub-theme, in the Gospel of Matthew, we see the, the rising hatred, the anger, the rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. And in fact, uh, John would pin it this way. In John chapter 1, verse 11, he says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And so precisely what we see taking place is his own not receiving him. Now, what Jesus mentions is he was addressing some of his own that would not receive him. The scribes and the Pharisees last week as we went through that. In verse 14 of chapter 15, he says this very plainly. He says, leave them alone. <laughs> leave them alone. Like, do not continue to try to pound this into their heads, but just simply uh, leave them alone. And, and in that... Jesus takes his own advice, and so where we're going to be today is Jesus actually makes his way to Lebanon. So in verse 21, if you want to begin there with me, then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And so he's in this region of Tyre and Sidon, which is located directly to the north of the Galilee region, north of Israel. It's what is known as modern-day Lebanon. And in verse 22, behold, the woman of the of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. And so we're introduced to a new character, a Canaanite woman. She comes to Jesus, and she has an issue. She's got family problems. She has a daughter who is possessed by a demon. Now, in Mark's account, he calls this woman a Syrophoenician woman. Now, don't get confused by that. They're not two different people. But uh, Matthew wanted to pay close attention and actually point out her origins. She was from, originally, the land of Canaan. Uh, Canaan and, and his descendants dwelt in all of this area. She was specifically of the Syrophoenician people. This was a sea-dwelling uh, people that were located on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. But I find it fascinating that Matthew specifically calls out that she was a woman of Canaan because... Uh, what we know about the Canaanites is they did possess the land, but they were dispossessed by the descendants of Abraham. So what Abraham was specifically given by God was the land of Canaan, meaning that all these Canaanites were to be driven out. So what we come to understand is he says this about 
uh, her being a Canaanite is that, uh, first of all, she was not a part of God's covenant. She was not a part of the promise that God gave to Abraham. In fact, her people were to be driven away. And so, with that said, she was also, her and her people, sworn enemies of Israel. You can imagine if you were driven out of your homeland, how you feel about the Jews. They did not like one another. In fact, they hated each other. And so she comes to Jesus. She's got these family issues with her daughter, and she calls him a very specific name. She says, O Lord, Son of David. This was Jesus' messianic title. He was the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, the son specifically of David. A thousand-year-old prophecy that David was given that his son would be the Messiah from his seed. And yet, um, this is being mentioned by a Syrophoenician woman, a Canaanite. Uh, she was not Jewish. So she's calling him by his messianic title, and she has nothing to do with the Messiah. So no doubt she's heard this phrase being used about Jesus, especially in the realm of healing. And so in verse 23, we see the response Jesus has to her issue. Verse 23, but he answered her not a word. He completely ignored her. Any of you ever feel like you brought things before the Lord and he did not answer you even a word? Here we have a Canaanite woman. She has a problem. It's very serious. She brings it before the Lord, and he does not even acknowledge her existence. Verse 23, at the end of that verse, but his disciples, surely these guys will have compassion upon her. Uh, his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. So while Jesus is busy ignoring this woman, Apparently, she doesn't just mention this once or twice. She's apparently repeating this and following them around, crying out for the Lord to help her and to heal her daughter, son of David, is what she continues to cry. And so these guys are annoyed. Jesus is ignoring. Uh, these guys are annoyed by this woman. Why? Because, let's face it, they've got Jesus stuff to do. I know none of you would ever fall into that camp, right? Where you've got things that the Lord puts out there for you to do, and then uh, what gets in the way? People. People are always messing up all this awesome stuff you have to do for Jesus. That's precisely what's going on for these guys. So then in verse 24, But instead he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so he finally does answer, only now the answer actually gets worse. He's basically telling her, look, I, I'm not here to help you. I'm here for the lost sheep of Israel. And so what we find is, here's this woman. She's in an awful spot. Everything is stacked up against her. Right From the outside looking in, her, her race is against her. I mean, she's a Canaanite. She doesn't have any rights to the son of David. And so her, her very ethnicity is actually against her. Her gender is against her. No woman would have approached a man in this society. Uh, you could have actually been stoned to death just for approaching a man and trying to talk to him. And so her ethnicity is against her, her gender is against her, and even Jesus' own disciples are against her. They want her to just go away. But what we find is um, this woman does not give up. In fact, that's the very thing Jesus is counting on as we go through this story that he knew she was not going to quit now then in verse 25 and then she the canaanite woman came 
and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. She cries out, no longer saying a catchphrase, Son of David, no longer trying to figure out just how can I possibly worship him. I've heard other people worship in this way. I've heard other people say this special phrase. If you just say this, it'll unlock the genie. And I think about how often um, we approach worship like that, that we come in with all these rules and regulations. Remember last week we covered traditions, right? Church has got a lot of traditions. But if I just worship God in this way, uh, maybe if I just uh, raise my hand. I don't, is it my right hand, my left hand? I'm not sure. Maybe it's both hands. Just, if you just do things in this certain way, maybe that'll unlock the mystery and God will begin to answer you. And so we approach him as if he was a genie in a bottle. That's precisely what this woman had done until she reached the point of desperation. And I would submit to you that the miracle that began in her life did not begin with Jesus healing her daughter but actually began right here in this spot. When she was at the point of absolute and complete brokenness, desperation, she comes to the Lord and she says, Lord, please heal me. What we're told here, or heal, Lord, help me. What we're told is that she worshipped him. The word in the Greek is the word proskunio, and what it literally means is to turn and kiss to turn and kiss. Now, now, men, I hope that when it comes to your relationship with your wife, that none of you would have to be given a set of instructions for how to turn and kiss her, right? That, that you shouldn't have to be told, well, if you just do it like this and turn your head just a little bit sideways. Like, none of you, that's ridiculous, right? And yet that's how we approach worship. <laughs> it's why this word is so very important. It's supposed to be natural, feel natural and, and it and for this young lady it comes at a place of brokenness and so when we look at at how to worship and how to truly worship from the heart i want to take you i know you guys love the old testament bible stories i'm going to turn back to second kings chapter six i'll give you a little intro and give you time to find it go to psalms and hang a left second samuel chapter six and here in this spot we've got the great king david now david has just uh, taken over the, com the kingdom completely from his father-in-law, uh, King Saul, who tried to kill him for a decade. Not a great relationship to have with your father-in-law. So if you think you've got a bad uh, relationship with your father-in-law, it's got to be better than this. So here's David, and he's just come off of uh, what, what is a great uh, stand against the Philistines. And so David has whooped some Philistines and now he's in this spot, and he's, he's pondering on the Lord, thinking about God's goodness and what he's done for him. And he remembers the Ark of the Covenant, the, the Ark that was such as an awesome symbol, a symbol they were actually given by God through Moses on Mount Sinai. This is, this is like a Holy Spirit hot spot, this, this box that was uh, overlaid with gold, that had the jar of man, and it had the tablets of Moses and the staff of Aaron. And they, they put it in the tabernacle as this uh, you know, item of worship, except when uh, King Saul decides to use it as a ploy to get God to actually win victories for him. He, he brings the ark out of the tabernacle and takes it out onto the battlefront, thinking that we'll go and beat the Philistines if we just take the Ark of the Covenant with us and put it out there handling God like a genie in a bottle. And so what happens is uh, Saul gets absolutely whooped. 
and the Israelites take off with their tail between their legs, and the Ark of the Covenant, this great symbol for their God, gets taken away by the nasty Philistines. So they take it back to their home territory, the Philistines do, and I won't go into that entire story, uh, but what ultimately happens is God gives them a great plague, uh, a plague we're told of tumors, and funny enough, if you look at the Hebrew, it's God actually gave them a plague of hemorrhoids. Like, like you can't even make this stuff up. It's actually in the book. God gives them this awful plague of hemorrhoids, and so they're like, look, we've had enough of this Israel God. We're going to send this ark back. Get rid of the plague of hemorrhoids. And so there's not enough preparation H to take care of all this. And so they send the Ark of the Covenant back. They put it on a cart, tie it to a couple oxen, smack them on the hiney and say, get out of here. The Ark of the Covenant then makes its way back to Israel. And it eventually ends up at this guy's house, out in his barn, a guy named Obed-Edom. And what we read from the story is that his house was greatly blessed because of the Ark of the Covenant. And so here's David. He's thinking about God's goodness in his life, and he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant back so that people can worship there in the tabernacle. And so he's got good thoughts and ideas. And and so he heads down to Obed-Edom's house, and he has constructed a really awesome cart. Like if this cart was from central Illinois, it would probably be jacked up, 4 by 4 probably some 33s and some KC lights. Like this is an awesome-looking cart because it's the Ark of the Covenant. Like you're going to bring this thing back on an awesome cart. And he invites 30,000 of his closest friends to have this big party to bring the Ark of the Covenant back. And David dresses up in his finest robes. And they get the Ark loaded there on the cart and they start to head it towards Jerusalem. And and as they're having this big party with 30,000 of his friends, uh, one of the oxen slips and the Ark begins to fall off the cart. And so here's Uzzah the priest. He's there next to it and he reaches out to grab the Ark to stop it from falling off this awesome cart. And just as he does, God sends down fire from heaven and strikes the priest dead. I don't know if you all have had many parties at your house, but i got to say that if you do, and God smokes somebody in the middle of the party with fire from heaven, that's a showstopper. Party's over. Everybody goes home. And so this is precisely what happens to King David. Like, he's got all of his friends there. It's thoroughly embarrassing. And so we pick up in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, Uh, verse 8, and this is how David is feeling. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of this place Perez Uzzah to this day. And then in verse 9, And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And so David begins in this spot of complete embarrassment, right? He's the king. This thing was supposed to be a great deal. So now he's been thoroughly embarrassed, and he's angry with God. What we find is here's a guy after God's own heart, and he's angry with the Lord. But what I love about David is that he doesn't stay angry at God. God's okay, by the way, if we're a little angry at times with things we don't understand. But I'd encourage you don't stay in that spot. David transitions from being angry to what do we see in verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day. Now, David's son, just a few years later, would write uh, in Proverbs chapter 1, and what we read there is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. And so as he's in this place where he is afraid of the Lord, God actually opens his mind up and lets him understand some things. You see, um, he missed the mark just a little bit with the worship. Because God, uh, it turns out when you look through his word, 
He was never interested in it being uh, placed upon a cart. That the Ark of the Covenant was actually supposed to be carried on men's shoulders on long poles. So David had completely gone away from what God's word said to do. And then God never asked for the worship to be fake and made up and, and all these people to be there and in royal priestly robes. He didn't ask for any of that. He just was after the heart. In verse 12, And now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And so David went and brought up the ark from the, from the ark of God, from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, that is Jerusalem, with gladness. And so it was that those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that they sacrificed the oxen and the fatted sheep, and then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And so here we see David now. He's now no longer wearing his priestly outfit. He's now gone all the way down to just a linen ephod. And I've heard lots of jokes about this in church, that David went out there in his underwear and danced around. And while it's funny to talk about, it's not exactly what the text says. What he actually was wearing were the priestly garments. He put on the linen ephod. The priests didn't wear wool, and they didn't wear fine robes for a few different reasons. Uh, one, because linen was actually comfortable, and linen was cool. You wouldn't sweat if you wore linen. You see, worship was not supposed to be how hard can I work, what can I do, but it was supposed to just be from the heart because we love him just because he is so good and so great. And, and David came to understand this. And so he's dancing now in front of the ark. No more big shows and productions. And, and so the ark of the covenant is brought back to the city of David, back to Jerusalem. And in verse 16, And now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, this is David's wife, looked through the window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And so they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then he distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both women and children, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. And so all the people departed to his house. And so what we see here is David. He's the king. He's now also fulfilling the job of the priest. And what does he do as a priest and as a king? He feeds the people. Here we see David actually as a type of Jesus Christ. Worshiping before the Father. Praising before the Father. Welcoming the people in. And then offering them all the bread of life. Now his uh, wife, Michael, didn't think this was all that impressive. In verse 20, And then David uh, returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She was thoroughly embarrassed of her husband and went right up in his face. And so... David said to Michael, It was before the Lord 
who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to that day of her death. And so what we see is here David, making it very clear that he is going to worship the Lord. No, no longer is he going to be worried about what anybody thinks. He's just going to play his music. He's going to dance because it's about him and God. It's not what about everybody else thinks. It's not what about what, what your neighbor might think of you if you're just worshiping the Lord. Instead, it's precisely between him and the Lord. And what I also find interesting is when we decide to make worship about how we dress and how well we sing and how well we go through the motions and all the actions and all the pomp and, and circumstance, uh, we find ourselves a lot of times in the spot of Michael where we are no longer blessed because we were determined to make it all about religion and not about relationship. And so the challenge here for us is as God doesn't always answer in the timing that he thinks we think he should answer, sometimes it seems he doesn't answer us at all for a while. Maybe, just maybe, he's trying to call you into a point of worship. That's precisely what he was doing here for King David. Now then, continuing on, back to our text at hand, after our Old Testament departure, verse 26. But he, Jesus, answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, but even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be as you desire. And her daughter was healed that very hour. And so we begin back in the text in verse 26. Jesus now answers her as she cries out and worships him with her whole heart. But he says this very interestingly. He says, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now what you need to understand is culturally, uh, for the Jews, they actually referred to the Gentiles as uh, Samaritan dogs or Gentile dogs. And they didn't mean this to be uh, like a really awesome thing, like, hey, what's up, dog? How you doing, dog? It wasn't, wasn't a part of their vernacular. Um, the word that they actually used was the word kion in the Greek, and it means a scavenging hound. This is like a nasty, flea-ridden, junkyard dog, mangy dog that's roaming around looking to bite somebody. That's how they're referring to the Gentiles. So Jesus, knowing that, says to this woman, it is not good for, to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. He doesn't call her a kion in Greek. Instead, he calls her kunarion, which means like a little pet. This is like a, a, little, a little shih tzu, like, like sassy. Uh, my mother-in-law's little, she's like a cute little sausage with feet, just roaming around. Like you can't be mad at little sassy who roams around even if she's, you know, wanting to be up on your lap all the time. You can't be upset at a little dog. That's the picture that Jesus is painting here. And he specifically talks about throwing the bread to the little dogs. Now, we're going to get to this 
here in a minute, but let me just remind you that in John chapter 6, what Jesus says of himself is that I am the bread of life. You see, the gospel, as Jesus presented it himself, and the Apostle Paul would follow along in this pattern, it was to be given first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Now that can seem uh, like it's being very biased, like God loves the Jews more than he loves us, but let me just encourage you that uh, God is very practical. He did this for a specific reason. He wanted the message to be first given to the Jews and then the Gentiles because they had a head start on Scripture. For 1,500 years, they had the Old Testament Scriptures. Paul would say the oracles of faith had been given to the Jew prior to the Gentile. So this is why the Scriptures would first be given uh, to them before us because it was to unlock their minds. And by the way, if you meet a Messianic Jew, what you'll find is they have a, a vast knowledge and understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ because they understand their Old Testament way better than we do. And so it unlocks things uh, for, for them to actually be able to come and share with the Gentiles. Now, verse 27, And she replies to the Lord, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And now, if you could just see this as you close your eyes, I can see the smile on Jesus' face. He knows that she's got it, that she understands. This is precisely what he was waiting on out of her this entire time. And so this whole dialogue back and forth was all to draw out the faith of this woman. In fact, I would submit to you that he went to Lebanon for her. He didn't go up there for anybody else. We're going to head to the next story in just a minute. He leaves directly after this. It's very possible he went to the area of Tyre and Sidon just to meet with this woman, just to draw out the faith of the one. And what we find is he says, O oh, oh woman, how great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed that very hour, meaning immediately. Her daughter was healed. But as I told you, I believe the healing actually began as she started uh, to worship. And that's really the point of this story, is that it was always supposed to be about the relationship. Jesus showed up just specifically for that relationship. He wasn't worried about titles and, and all this. He shows up just for that woman. And so, I want to encourage you today that if your relationship isn't just that, if it is instead a religion and a whole series of rules and regulations, uh, in the Brock Ashley version of the Bible, uh, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. That's what rules do. They always wreck us. They, we can never live up to it. And so that's precisely what happens in this story. Now, continuing on in verse 29, and Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up, to, and went up the mountain and sat down there. And then the great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the maimed, <clears throat> and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. In verse 31, And so the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And so what we find is Jesus now skirts around the Galilee region, and he ends up in an area known as a Decapolis. 
Now, Decapolis is to the east of Israel, and it's now modern-day Jordan. So what we find is Jesus actually avoids the Galilee region altogether. He goes from one Gentile area to now another Gentile area, and he gets there, and, and what we find is the multitudes find him again. <laughs> so everywhere Jesus goes to get a little bit of quiet time, here come the multitudes. And as they come to him in verse 30, they bring their lame, their blind, their mute, their maimed, and with each different instance, he heals them just as he did when he was in Israel. To the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. You're starting to see the pattern take place in the ministry of Jesus. And in verse 31, And so the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speak, the maim made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. This is always what Jesus was doing. He was pointing all the glory back to God. So when you look at the Trinity, this, this perfect uh, Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus the Son, God the Father, this relationship, it's in perfect community. What we find is the Spirit is always testifying of the Son, always pointing us towards the saving grace of Jesus Christ. But then what does Jesus do? He always takes and turns all the glory back to God the Father. God the Father then empowers the Holy Spirit to give power to the Son. You see the cyclical effect of this triune Godhead. And what I wanted to mention to you is that God's work, done in God's timing, by God's power, always bring glory to God. So when you're in a spot and you begin to find uh, that the glory starts to get pointed your direction, you need to check just what's happening in your life. If you're getting the glory and not God, uh, maybe these things have gotten themselves out of alignment. And so it's an important question to ask, who am I working to glorify? That's rhetorical. Don't worry, you don't have to answer that out loud. Now then, continuing on from here, in verse 32, now Jesus called his disciples to himself, and he says, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And we don't know if that was a three-day journey from Tyre and Sidon to Decapolis or if he'd been in this Decapolis area three days. But either way, they've been going with him and continuing with him now three days with nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint along the way. And then, verse 33, his disciples said to him, Where would we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? And so Jesus, for him, the key, again, it's compassion. He loves these people. By the way, they're not Jewish people. They're the Gentiles. He looks upon them with great love, and the disciples follow it up with uh, doubt. He loves, they doubt. In verse 34, we continue. And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few little fish. And so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the loaves and the fish, and he gave thanks and broke them, and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude. And so they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of fragments that were left. And now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude into the boat and came to the region of Magdala. And so we see the disciples now in this spot of doubt, and we have to scratch our heads just a little bit because 
We were just in Matthew 14 a couple weeks ago, and what did we see? But Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, I've told you before that Matthew's account isn't chronological, it's topical, but no doubt um, this whole feeding of the 5,000 didn't take place like 100 years ago or 50 years ago. Jesus' entire ministry only lasted three years. So we can easily surmise this was just at the most a few months ago. Yet what do they do? They doubt. Now I want to give you as we wrap up today two possible reasons for their doubt. Uh, One, they lack the faith that he would not do it. And secondly, they lack the faith that he could not do it. And so as we begin to wrap this up, uh, let's look at they lack the faith that he would not do it. Now I shared with you that the gospel message was to be taken first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And we see even in the case of the feeding of the 5,000 versus the feeding of the 4,000, what did he do? He first fed the Jews and then he fed the Gentiles. But here's the thing. Um, they were okay with Jesus healing the Gentiles, right? They, they just got there, and they understood he's going to heal a few of them. But when he fed them with bread from heaven, that opened up a whole new thing in their mind, a whole new area of doubt. Why? Because uh, what did God do for their forefathers when he brought them uh, from Egypt through the wilderness? But as Moses led them those 40 years, what God provided was bread from heaven. They walked out of their tent every morning, and there's the bread there on the ground. They looked at it on the ground, and they said, what is it? And so they called it manna, which literally means, what is it? God called it bread from heaven. They called it, what is it? But they've had this in their history, that God would always provide food for them, for them, for the Jews. And yet here he is, here's Jesus in the flesh, and he's now providing bread for the Gentiles. But wait a minute, that was supposed to be our bread, right? This was only intended for us, not for other people. And I wonder how often in our lives we've seen God uh, take care of a thing and, and seen him work something out in our lives, and yet we can convince ourselves because of our circumstance and our relationship with God that he'll only do that for me. He surely won't do that for that person. Like, God, you... You know how awful they are. I mean, look at how they've lived their life. Like, I, I mean, I did some bad stuff, but surely not that bad. Like, you, you wouldn't take care of them in that way, would you? Or we begin to set a, a series of parameters for God. Like, you're only going to heal in this certain way in this box. But the thing is, um, God's not that interested in your parameters, He's not that interested in, in the ways that I think he will and will not heal. He's the God of the universe. He can feed anyone he chooses to feed at any time he chooses to feed them. And so they lack the faith that he would not feed in a way that was special just between them, or so they thought. Now the second way that they lacked faith is that they lacked faith that he could not do it. Which is funny because here they are in the same spot, the same situation. Uh, Jesus comes to them. He wants to feed. And what do they say? Where are we going to get all this food? Well, he just provided bread from heaven a few weeks or months ago. But they are back in this spot, the same place, and yet they doubt. And it's really easy for me 
to look on these disciples with disdain and go, why? Why would you not have faith? And then I look in my own life. And I think about how many times he's allowed me to be in the same situation, in the same place, and yet what do I do? I'd love to tell you that I prayed about it and gave it all to the Lord, and eventually I do pray about it, right? But, but before then, I've got to worry first because the Lord needs my worry, and he needs me to come up with all the possible scenarios that could possibly go wrong in this particular situation. And so I lay awake at night, staring up at the ceiling, thinking about this could go wrong, and this could go wrong, and this could go wrong. So much so that in a time where I really probably need to rest more than anything else, what's the one thing I can't do? I can't sleep. Until eventually I fall asleep with exhaustion and then wake up the next morning and go, oh, God, you wanted me to pray about that. So foolish. And yet here these people are, these disciples, and they're full of fear. And you know what? What cannot exist when we're fearful? Faith. Faith and fear do not exist on the same plane. And so, out of fear, out of worry, out of concern, they think he cannot possibly do this. And yet what we find is that God is not bound by what we can understand. He is not bound by science and reason and logic. And as someone who, who loves science, who has a degree in engineering, that's hard. That's really difficult for me to get my head wrapped around. So much so that the best example I can give of it is, uh, have you ever been overseas, like in a really big plane? Like, we're going to go to Israel next year, and we'll take one of those big old jets from Newark, and, and it'll be like five in the middle, and three over here, and three over here, and they're huge. <clears throat> and as you're sitting on the plane, and you watch the people load, that, like, if you're like me, I, I begin to calculate this in my head and go, boy, that's a lot of people. That's a that's a lot more people. And then I look to the back, and I see them starting to load the, the carts with the drinks and the food. They're going to serve us three meals on this 12-hour flight. And I'm thinking, that's a lot of food. Did anybody do the math on this? And then you look out the window, and you start to see the conveyor belt of luggage. And you know, I know the lady next to me packed for like the next six months. Like, that's a lot of weight on this thing. And I'm, you begin to worry. Like, because what do I know? I know in my head the laws of gravity. I understand that force equals mass times acceleration. And so the earth wants to hold me down at 32.2 feet per second per second. And how in the world, with all this weight, are we going to get up off the ground? So then the plane begins to taxi its way out there uh, and, and starts the process of takeoff. And if you've ever watched these large planes take off, they don't take off like the small planes. They take a while. In fact, it seems like they're never going to get up off the ground. And the plane begins to slowly, and the engines are going at full speed. And you're watching the wings out there kind of moving up and down. You're like, I don't think it's going to make it. I don't think it's, this is the time. Jesus, take me home. Not Carrie Underwood, don't take the wheel. Just take me home. And, and it's not going to happen for us. And you look at people, and they're starting to hold their hands. I don't think they prayed in a really long time, but they're starting to pray a little bit like, oh, Lord. And what do you know? Eventually, the plane takes off. And folks begin to relax a little bit. Because here's the thing. Um, there's a really smart Italian guy named uh, Bernoulli. And he came up with a principle that says, faster moving air 
is lower pressure than slower moving air. And so those awesome airplane wings with that cool shape, uh, there's just enough uh, low pressure uh, air going over the top and higher pressure air underneath those wings to cause it to lift. And so the law that I was so concerned with of gravity that was going to hold me onto the ground, it was superseded by a law that I didn't understand nearly as well. And by the looks of the people's faces all around me, they didn't understand Bernoulli's principle either. But it still took off. The plane still got to its destination. When I think about the ways we try to limit God and what he can do and what he cannot do and what he will do and what he will not do, and we turn to what God says through the pen of Isaiah, Isaiah 55 verse 8, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are, my way, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Thank Jesus that his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Because my thoughts have me still on the ground, unable to take off. I can't possibly go anywhere and here's the thing and maybe my favorite part about this entire uh, message this entire section of scripture Jesus performing this miracle feeding these 4,000 Gentiles it had absolutely nothing to do with the faith of his disciples they lacked faith completely and utterly and so so many times in church we want to hear if you just had enough faith brother if you just name it and claim it, if you just believe, then you can receive. These guys didn't believe. Yet you know what happened? They received. Thank the Lord that my faith isn't the only thing that's holding me back. Now, is it true scripturally that Jesus couldn't do no great works in Nazareth because of their unbelief? Yes, it is. But it didn't mean that he couldn't do any works. It just meant that they weren't able to receive the blessing of witnessing them. He just picked up and went to the next spot. Jesus is not limited by your belief. He is not whatsoever. Praise the Lord that he's not. In fact, for these men, in verse 36, if you look and see what he did, he took the loaves and the fish, he gave thanks, and he broke them, and then he gave them to his faithless, unbelieving disciples, and the disciples gave them to the multitude. He took a whole group of unbelieving people who did not think that he could or that he would, and then he allowed them to participate in the blessing. He gave them the bread of life to distribute to people. I am so encouraged by that. When I think about how many times I lack the faith to believe that God could or he would or he might give me a word to speak or not, then I realize this thing doesn't depend on me. Thank the Lord it doesn't depend on me. And it doesn't depend on you either. The best thing they did, by the way, here's the thing they did in order to allow them to distribute the blessings of God. They showed up. <laughs> they just showed up. So if you want to know the real secret, you can write this down. This is brilliant on my part, to getting to see 
and partake in the blessings of God, show up. You never know what you're going to see. You never know what miracle might take place. One final place before we close. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him diligently. (laughs) Diligently seeking after God. Daily just showing up, even if you don't completely feel like it. This is the thing that exhibits your faith, that shows it off, that God is so pleased with. He is not looking for you to provide or perform in some miraculous way. He's going to do that. You just have to be around to partake in it. And so, Father, I thank you and I praise you for this word today. Thank you that your goodness and your blessings are not contingent upon me and my faith. Thank you, Father, that my little faith, my mustard seed-sized faith, is enough for you to be able to work with. And Father, the encouragement here in this entire message is for me to keep my faith in the fight. But so often I want to pull my faith out because I'm convinced you will not, you cannot, and so I don't have much to begin with, and then I want to just take it back and go home. Your encouragement here with the Canaanite woman and again with the feeding of these 4,000 people is that if we want to see you do miraculous things and wondrous things and beautiful things, then we have to keep our faith in the fight to believe that you will and you can. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Lord, thank you. Thank you for being unchanging and unwavering in a world that is full of change and wavering all around us. Father, I praise you in Jesus' name. Sorry, I forgot it was communion today for a second. We're going to ask you, uh, as Jake and Michaela play this song, to just come up and take the elements for yourself or for your family, however you'd like to. And you can return back to your seat and then we'll observe communion together as a family.
leave behind your regrets and mistakes come today there's no reason to wait jesus is calling bring your sorrows and trade them for joy from the ashes a new life is born jesus is calling oh come to the altar the father's arms are open wide forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of jesus christ oh what a savior isn't he wonderful sing hallelujah christ is risen bow down before him for he is lord of all sing hallelujah christ is risen oh come to the altar the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. First of all, these things are tricky. They got a little plastic cellophane piece you take off first, and then you got the bigger piece underneath it. So if you don't get it right the first time, we'll get it eventually. Don't get mad and frustrated. Become the cussing Christian. <laughs> the Apostle Paul, when he was addressing the Corinthian church who were struggling with their identity, they had all the wealth and success you could possibly imagine, yet... Um, what they didn't have is any peace. And so in bringing them back to the point of understanding the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, he said, For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. so Father we do just that we thank you for the bread of life thank you for the way that you provide abundantly more than we could ask or think Father thank you for forgiveness of sins thank you for wiping them out completely and utterly we are so incapable of doing that we thank you for your provision and we praise you in Jesus name Amen 
And in that same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the blood of the new covenant. This, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for the sacrifice that you laid out there willingly, not by force or coercion for no man caused you to lay down your life. You, you decided to do that on our behalf, taking our place. Thank you, Father, for pouring out your blood. Thank you for the remission of sins, Lord. We are so excited about your return someday. We don't know when the day is going to be, but we know it's closer than it was yesterday. And so we're so excited, and yet at the same time we have friends and we have family that do not know you. So, Father, as we remember you, we call to remembrance those that do not. Father, we, we look upon our lives and we wonder when we should and should not share, how we should and should not share, and sometimes, Lord, honestly, we just look and think, you can't possibly heal in this spot. You're too far gone. Thank you, Lord, that that's not for us to decide. That's up to you and you alone. And so, Father, help us as we boldly proclaim your name until the day of your return. Thank you that you are going to come soon for your bride, that you're going to call us up into heaven the way you did the Apostle John. Come up here, you're going to say, and we are going to come quickly as your bride. But until that day, we remember you, and we praise you, and we worship you. In Jesus' name. Please stand as we sing one final song.
that never gives up, never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up, never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up, never runs out on me. Your love in death, in life. I'm confident and covered by the power of your great love. My death is pain. There's nothing that can separate my heart from your great love. Your love never fails and never gives up. Never runs out on me. Your love never fails and never gives up. Never runs out on me. Your love never fails and never gives up. Never runs out on me. Your love. And the church says, Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much. For joining uh, today, let me just encourage you to, to keep your faith in the fight. You know, if you think that maybe you don't have enough or, or you're not good enough or you haven't got it all, you know, that the Lord needs to work with, I mean, the stories we're talking about, he took a group of foul-mouthed fishermen and turned them into to people that would change the world. All they had to do was keep their faith in the fight. Show up. Thank you, guys. God bless you. Thank you.